uh, as Adam said, we're continuing on in our series through the book of Acts tonight. So if you can be turning to Acts 6, that'd be fantastic. We'll read it in just a minute. Um, it's a text we actually looked at quite a lot when we did our series on the church. Paul referenced it in all three sermons, so it must be good. And uh, it was particularly helpful for us to think uh, through what it means to be a church. And we consider that the church is Jesus-ruled, elder-led, deconserved and membership accountable and we'll see all of that tonight but we're not going to talk a huge heap about that but keep those things in mind that's really helpful that's really edifying let that teaching flood back into your mind as you reread a text we used during that series although this text is really helpful for that uh, before we even touch on structuring and on delegation and of all these things that this text is really helpful for I think it's absolutely vital that we understand the the mindset and the atmosphere into which Act 6 happens. We shouldn't even get to a conversation about church structuring before we know why we should do it. Before we think about structure, we need to know what should dictate our every move when we restructure. And not just in terms of uh, delegation and instructions, but in terms of heart and mindset. That's really important. It's obviously a very timely text for us, as uh, we all got the email this week about an upcoming EGM, proposed changes to eldership and to structure. That's not uh, a clever choice of text on my part. Uh, I had nothing to do with that. But I trust it's a providential thing on God's part that he should have something to say to us at this time. We shouldn't be surprised that as we walk through books of the Bible, they're timely. This should be a word in season to us. Um, what's the context then in the book of Acts? So far we've been walking through, and at the start, Jesus, risen before he ascends, instructs the church that they're going to be his witnesses. They're going to go out and testify about him, and they're going to do that in Jerusalem, where they live, and in Judea, the next part out, and then in Samaria, and then in the ends of the earth. And Jesus has told them that this is going to happen, that the church is going to grow, that it's going to multiply, that his word's going to spread even here. And that people from across the world are going to hear the gospel and become saved by it. And this is in line with God's promised plan from the Old Testament that he was going to win for himself a people made up of every tribe and every tongue and every nation to be his forever. So that's what's going on in the book of Acts. That's its story. That's its big theme. And we're going to see that week by week as we walk through. But that's what's going to happen. That's the big plan of the book of Acts. But... Over the past few weeks, we've hit this section where the question is, what's going to stop the gospel? There's this promised freight train to the nation's gospel. And we're just hitting this section where there's just things that could hold it up or slow it down or kill it dead. And so a couple of weeks ago, we thought, is that going to be internal corruption with Ananias and Sapphira? Is that going to be external persecution last week? And we saw that external persecution was powerless to stop the spirit-empowered spread of the gospel. And so tonight we've got that mindset in our heads. And we've got that atmosphere of Jesus has said, you are going to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. That's the context. But we're in this bit where it's what's going to hinder, what's going to slow it up. And so the people that we're reading about are coming into it with that mindset. The gospel's got to go but they're realizing that there's going to be friction as they seek to do it. And uh, what I really want us to do is to keep that backdrop in mind the whole way through. That's going to really be our emphasis, is what's the mindset that goes behind structuring. And as uh, the title, if you've got a bulletin, says, I want us to think that the spread of the gospel is actually the source 
of all church structuring. That's the context which spawns this passage. Gospel's got to go. And so they hit this hindrance and they work out what church should look like. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you pick that up? And we're going to turn uh, together to the book of Acts. And we're going to read, uh, we're going to pick up a little bit where we were last week in chapter 5. Uh, that should be on page 1098 if you've got any Bibles nearby you. Uh, and we'll keep that open the whole night. We need to look at what God has to say to us. So we'll read from verse 42 of chapter 5. This is what the apostles, the 12 people sent by Jesus, are doing. This is the context. 42 of chapter 5. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Keep that open as we study it together. Okay, did you see the context there? End of chapter 5, start of chapter 1. The word's being proclaimed house to house in the temple courts. The gospel's spreading. People are becoming saved. And then straight away in verse 1 and 2, we hit this potential hindrance, another thing that could slow up the gospel. And the shape of this passage is really one and two present us with this problem. And by the end of the section in verse seven, we see it's fixed. We see they've reconciled what they need to reconcile. And that's the story of verses two to six. So we're gonna look first at that little bit, but first we've got to understand what's the problem in verses one and two. There's this complaint that arises between two parties of widows and then actually we get presented with a deeper problem. Um, it's important to realize the church is growing. It's growing and growing and growing and growing. It's growing exponentially, this church in Jerusalem. And so as it grows, it encounters more and more problems. Uh, we've seen in earlier chapters, it's a church that's done care within its community really well. No one had need. Everything had, everyone had everything in common. But by the time we get to chapter 6, either because they've grown too much or because of other things, that's no longer happening. And so these two parties are, are not getting equal treatment. And to explain a little about, a bit about those, the Hebraic Jews are those who live in Jerusalem, live in Palestine, and who speak Hebrew or Aramaic, and that's where they live and that's where they're from. But the Grecian Jews are kind of ones who've been spread further afield, and they started speaking Greek, which is shocking. And uh, so they're slightly less incorporated. And it's unclear as to whether they're being neglected as a kind of segregation thing, or whether they're being neglected just because they're being overlooked. Uh, but it's a problem. It's unacceptable either way. And it's got to be resolved. 
It is a potential hindrance, but I don't think it's the major hindrance in this text. I actually think that happens in verse 2. If we read verse 2 together again. So this, this complaint has come before the 12. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. I actually think that's a major hurdle there in verse 2. Do you see that language? It would not be right. They're emphatic that this is wrong for them to stop it. It's totally clear that they think it's dissatisfactory for them to stop doing the job that they're doing. To drop this task and to take on another, they say, no, it would not be right. They think that's the big hurdle. They're really clear. We've got another job to do, another duty to crack on with. And it would be bad news for the church for us to divert our attention away from that and onto this. That's what they're really clear on. So the hindrance is actually church delegation. Who's going to do the jobs? The hindrance is if the apostles stop doing the ministry of the word, the gospel's going to slow up or even stop dead. That's what's on the line here. And so what I want us to see is that the church together overcomes this hurdle of who's going to do what. The church as an entirety is involved. So what I want us to see in this text is a threefold commitment to the delegation of duties. And then in a minute we're going to think about why. Why do they commit to it? What's the point in the, in the structuring that they go about in? Um, but the, the way I want us to understand it is in a threefold delegation of duty. Fold number one is the twelve. So there's these three parties in the church. There's the twelve, there's the whole church membership, and then there's the seven. And what I want us to see is that, that all three parties have a role to play in making sure delegation of duties happens. And that all three parties have a vested interest in it happening. And we'll look at that a little bit later on. But the first party that commits to delegating tasks is the 12. These apostles, they're the leaders of the church. Uh, We know that they've got a job to do and they say that that job is the ministry of the word, which I take to be what's happening in 542. Teaching, preaching the gospel, house to house, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. That's their job. And so they call the church together to make sure that they don't stop doing that job. They want to delegate. They want to hand over the task. And what's abundantly clear in this text, and this is really important, I think we've got some 21st century church issues on this idea. What's abundantly clear is that they are not delegating because they think practical jobs are beneath them. This is, this is below our pay grade. We're apostles. We don't do these things. It's not about that in this text. And it's not a matter of them saying the opposite. They don't think they're not up to the task. They're not phased by it but they understand something really important. It's actually what we read from Ephesians. They recognize that God gives different gifts and different callings to different people for the sake of the body. And what they're really clear on is they know what they've been called and gifted to do. We've been called and gifted to serve the word. That's our job. And they're really clear that they're not going to compromise on that because of what it means for the church. It's like elsewhere in the Bible where it uses the body imagery. That the, the church is one body made up of different members, each doing a different function. And it's vital that it's made up of different members. A body that's all hands doesn't work. Even if you see it in the Adams family, it doesn't work. body of all hands does not work. And so they understand themselves to be like kidneys. And they've got kidney function to do. And that's the service of the word. And so they commit to kidney function. They can't go off and be livers for a day. Because the body needs kidney function. 
They understand that they can't be all things. And they're not trying to be. They're not trying to be majorly in control here. But they understand the body needs to be a body. They can't be all things to all people in that way. And that's, that's their point here. It's not that they think they're better. It's not that they think this task is beneath them. It's just not their task. There's no arrogance in it. It's just not theirs to do. And they recognize that actually this is a vital function that another vital organ needs to do. This is a process the body needs. It needs care. This is a big deal. And so they need to work out who's going to be the liver and do the liver's job. Because it's not the kidney's job to be the liver. That makes sense, doesn't it? We understand, I don't know. I did high school biology, but I didn't do very well. Um, but I, I remember that kidneys do kidney things, livers do liver things. And some of you are better at all that stuff. There's medics and there's nurses and there's people who understand these things. And that's how it works. And I think the very language of the text make that, makes that really plain. It's actually a little bit unhelpful that they, they use the phrase ministry of the word. Because in verse 4, if you see that where it says, we're going to give our attention to the ministry of the word, that word ministry is the very same word in the original language for what the other task is. is both words are service. It's the deaconing word. We're going to serve the word while you serve in another area. There's no grading here. It's not like one's ministry and one's below that. There's no sense of that. I think that's a 21st century thing that we think some tasks in the church are really holy, like preaching's really holy, but making tea and coffee is really just bog standard and not holy. That's not what Acts 6 would say to us. Acts 6 would say serving is serving. It's for the body. It's all good. And we should respect and honor and give dignity to those tasks. This text is really honorable towards physical jobs in a church, towards just delegating. And it's important to see that it doesn't happen because of arrogance. It's a right recognition and commitment to what God calls you to be. Be the organ you are would almost be a tagline for their mentality. They're vehemently committed to it. And it's good that they let go of control. So that's the first fold that's committed to delegation. Fold number two is the church. The church needs to to back this idea of delegating duties and not say, no, apostles, you do everything for us. You can see that in verses three to six, can't you? Actually, the majority of the text is given to what the church does. Three whole verses. They're meant to go and choose some people from among them who meet the qualifications, and then they're going to select them, bring them before the apostles, and then do their job. It's important to see that the church has a job to make sure that delegation happens. The church needs to preserve the workload of the servants of the word. That's an important function the church does. And the concept there is that they're pleased with it. Look at that verse 5. They like the idea so much that they say they're, even, they're just okay with it. Yeah, it's good that you guys do that. Fine. Crack on. They're pleased with it. They're elated at this suggestion that something's going to be delegated down and that these guys are going to crack on with what God's called them to do. And I think you see in the qualifications in verse 3, the, the dignity, again, that's given to, to just serving in dividing up food and dividing up money for widows. It's dignified. This isn't some job just for, for run-of-the-mill people. This is important. You need to be godly. Do you see that, verse 3? Find some guys who are known to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. They've got to be godly. They've got to be qualified guys who are going to do a great job because the task is important. This isn't saying serving widows is unimportant. It's massively important. It must be done well. It's got to be done by the godliest guys there and the guys who are most wise. They've got to do a smashing job of it. 
Godliness is so important. And the reality is, if they don't pick the right guys, the church has got such a responsibility here. If they pick the wrong guys, this is danger territory. If they pick the wrong guys who are ungodly or just unqualified in other ways, and this job gets dropped, the body goes into system failure. The kidneys have to start trying to be livers again. And that doesn't work. And it all collapses, and they end up in a crash car. It's not good. So that's so the church is committed to the delegation of duties. The third fold is the seven. These guys who step up to the job. Uh, we could probably call them the first deacons quite happily. They step up to this task of serving in this really lovely, honored way. They step up so that the 12 can keep doing what they need to do and so that the church can keep functioning. Um, it's not glamorous, is it? Dividing up food for widows. It's not really... You're not going to get on telly for doing it, really, are you? Um, but it's highly regarded in the Bible. Look at how it's presented. It is really given a lot of weight and a lot of significance. They get hands laid on them, commissioned into the task. They're really honored in the Bible. Look at that. Their names are in the Bible. What would you do to get your name in the Bible? What kind of person do you think you've got to be to get your name in the book? You've got to be someone who serves. Wait tables for widows. That's what's dignified in Scripture. That's what's valued in this text. But the thing is, as we see these threefolds, committing to the delegation of, of duties, my question is why? Why are they all so happy even to crack on with this, te- with this task? Why are the apostles adamant it would not be right for us to stop? And why is the church pleased? And why do these guys just step up? We don't hear that they've got any complaint about it. They just do it. And they do it so well that we don't even hear about how they did it. They just crack on. My question is Why? How does that backdrop from before come in? Why do the 12 want to ensure that this task gets done? Why? Why does all of this happen? Why does First Baptist Church Jerusalem commit to the delegation of duties? Why do they care? Why do they commit to structuring, to instigating church structure that stands forever? Why do they care? And truthfully, why should Charlotte Chapel bother being likewise? Fair enough, First Baptist Jerusalem cracks on with this. I don't know if that was their name, by the way. It's just a handy little catch. First Baptist Church Jerusalem. That's not going to win me any friends at my Presbyterian college, is it? But um, First Baptist Church Jerusalem starts out, and they're committed to the delegation of duties. Why should we be? Why are they? That's my big question. Why are they bothered? And it's exactly as I said at the start. This is what's key to me. This is the big takeaway. This is the thing to remember. The whole church mentality is what undergirds this text. It's not as explicit as all that, but underneath, underpinning everything that goes on in this text, why they want to have a discussion about structure and how to implement it and making it happen, their passion and their desire, the whole time behind it is this. So the word of God can blossom in the church and so that the word of God can go out through the church. This is about the word of God spreading. That's what's driving them in this text. This is a a gospel text. What's driving delegation of duties in Acts 6 is a commitment to what Jesus has called them to be. It's faithfulness to Christ that makes us delegate rightly. That's what's going on here. Look at this. Verses 2 to 6 in the text happen for a reason. That reason is verse 7. So that the word of God may spread, so that numbers of disciples in Jerusalem might increase rapidly. Large number of priests coming to salvation. That's why they delegate. Verses 2 to 6 exist so that verse 7 might be the case. That's why they did it. 
That's why they were committed to church structure. That's where the heads are at coming in at verse 1. People are getting saved. That needs to keep happening. Jesus has said it will keep happening. And so they do whatever it takes in 2 to 6 to make sure that they structure themselves in such a way that the word of God can just keep blossoming and keep blossoming and be as central as humanly possible to their life as a church. That's why they do it. That's why I said that the source, uh, the spread of the gospel is the source of church structuring. We think about church structure because we care about the spread of the gospel. That's why we do it. The playing field to talk about church structuring isn't to do with anything other than the spread of the gospel. That's the, the parameters for our discussion. What's going to help us spread the gospel best? That's our parameters in thinking about these things. That's what counts. So it's a threefold commitment of the whole church, uh, of the delegation of duties. Why? For the delight of all men. A threefold commitment to the delegation of duties for the delight of all people. That's why they do it. That's why they dig in and divide up and commit to the things they commit to. So that people might come to delight in Christ. That's what drives church structuring. That's why we should think hard about how we structure. That's why the 12 are so adamant. Back there in verse 2, it would not be right for us to neglect the word of God. Quite literally, the language is, it would not be right of us to leave the word of God behind. That's what they're saying it would not be right to do. We can't turn around and just leave the book at the back. We can't do that. Leaving the book on the back shelf is game over for the spread of the gospel. That's it. No Acts chapter 7. Not needed. Doesn't happen. No verse 7. Praise God that he chooses to call people to serve his word in the life of his church. We need that. And he still does that. We've got to understand there's a slight difference between apostles and current day pastors and word servants in different other ways. They've got this unique task of recording and making sure the apostate message settles down and, and is secure for us. The task now of a word servant is to expound that message, to share the message in the New Testament. They had to write it. They had to make sure it, it was knuckled down and tight. But we get to expound it. That's, that's our job now, and that's what we're committed to. We haven't left the book on the back shelf. We're committed to this book. That's the call for gospel ministers that should be the passion of pastors who teach in this church. And now as then, just as we saw in verse 4, there's threats. There's threats to busying time that we might just start to slowly, day by day, turn around and leave the book at the back. There's threats to that, not necessarily in our church services. I think it's really unlikely you'll come to Charlotte Chapel in the next year and someone will just walk into the pulpit without a Bible. I'm not saying that's going to happen. But I'm saying the threat is in the week. I'm saying the threat probably these days is the email inbox. that We get busier and busier, and so less and less time is given to this thing. It's given to time in this book, working out how best to teach it, and how to tell it to non-Christians, and how to spread this book, how to inject it into the life of this church. That's the job. That's what they're committed to doing, and they're committed to it for seriously good reasons. But they don't want to leave it behind. They're not content to start diluting their duty. That's their focus. That's what they're called to do. We believe people are still called to that internally, in their own hearts and externally as the church confirms that. That's what we try and do on ministry apprenticeships is find people who feel drawn towards ministry and the church confirms you're suitable for ministry because God still calls people to this for the reasons we read in Ephesians, to bless the church. 
it's an important thing. But it's dangerous. It's a dangerous job. We can easily get distracted. There's lots of threats on time. But this is priority one. And did you see what they back it up with in verse four? It's really inconvenient to close your Bible in the middle of a sermon. Um, Do you see what they committed to in verse 4? What they added onto this word service. They say, the serving of the word. And what do they add in verse 4? Prayer. That's what they back it up with. That's their job. Serving the word and the caveat, prayer. Exactly the same today. Our job is slightly different. We expounds, they recorded. But that's our job, is to be working on teaching the word and backing up with prayer without prayer it's kind of just like a jukebox that's beautiful and it's got all your favorite records on it it's glorious it's glistening it's ready to go but it's unplugged from the wall that's the minister without prayer that's the servant of the word without prayer just disempowered could be playing all these great tracks but it's just not going to happen without prayer that's part of our job and so brothers and sisters I'm preaching to myself in part here and to other members of the team and of the eldership, we need to commit to prayer. Individually, as we work on sermons and work on how to do Bible studies, but collectively as a team, prayer is priority one as we go about trying to do word ministry. So word servants, if you're here tonight and you serve the word, that's what God's called you to do and called you to be. Teach, proclaim, delegate. Delegate, it's an important part. Make sure you know your calling and you back it to the nines. That's what God's called you to do and the church needs you to do it. So back it, do it, and baste everything you do in prayer. So it's not just the, the 12 that were committed. The church was pleased. And I want us to think about what, how does the, the ministry of the words through the apostles connect with the church. They, they're really adamant the word's got to be taught and proclaimed. But why does the church agree? Why, why are they so happy in verse 5? Why should they care that the gospel's taught? Why should they be so passionate? Flick back with me to Acts chapter 2. It's only a couple of pages back. And we'll read just the two verses from that. So I want us to think about what's this relationship between the service of the word and, and the people in the church. Let's just connect those two things together. In Acts chapter 2, we'll read from verse 40. So what's going on is they're they're doing what they do. They're preaching the word. With many other words, he warned them. That's one of the apostles. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and of prayer. Do you see that? The... The ministry of the word is why they exist as Christians. It's how they got saved. That's why they're happy for them to keep doing it. If they hadn't done it to begin with, they wouldn't be there. They'd be unsaved if it wasn't for service of the word by these guys. And now it's absolutely central to what they're doing as a church. That's what they're devoted to. Um, Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you wonder what this message is that should drive the way we church structure and that we're so passionate about and that we think should dictate everything we do. Uh, it's the message of Jesus Christ um, that, uh, that these apostles were trusted to spread, that we still continue to spread. And it's the message that you're a sinner, that you've sinned by choosing to do things and choosing to pursue things other than God. And that because you're a sinner, there's a punishment for that, that God is a just God and can't bear that sin. 
But the amazing news of the gospel, the amazing news about Jesus, is that he came and died for it. He offered to take away it and its punishment by dying for it on the cross and by offering new life and forgiveness to people as he gives them his perfection, that they might be reconciled to God. That's the gospel. You're a sinner, but through Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins. And through the cross, the amazing thing about the gospel is you get God. And he's the source of all delight. That's why I said the delegation of duties for the delight of all people. When you come to Christ, you get God, and God is the source of all delight. At his hands are pleasures forevermore. Delight so good, so robust, that they can even see us joyful through the very sorrows of life. That's what they're offering. That's what we're offering to you tonight if you're not a Christian. That's the good news about Jesus. You should put your trust in Jesus tonight. It's amazing. It's the best news ever. It's got to spread just now as it, as it did in Acts. You get to come to the source of true delight. So that's the message that has made the church the church. And it's the message that they're committed to. Do you see that? They dedicated themselves to this teaching. Think if the apostles did what they did before and just put the book at the back. What would they be dedicated to? What would they build their lives on? What would they know to teach to their friends? What gospel would they have to share? It's be gone. Be absolutely gone. And so they're committed to biblical structuring so that the, the word keeps getting taught to them. They need it to grow. They need it to blossom in them, as we saw in Ephesians. And they need it to blossom through them out to the world. They delegate duties. They commit to that as a church membership for one reason. They care about the lost. They care about the lost they know they were once outside and now they're inside because people preach the word and they're so committed to people keeping preaching the word that they're happy, they're pleased to see them delegate and keep doing that job and keep doing that job forever uh, maybe you've got very little interest in church structure maybe you feel a bit disinterested and disheartened about the ideas of members meetings maybe you're young in the church and you just think who cares this is why you should care, it's about the lost if you care about Jesus and you care about lost people, you care about church structure. That's why you show up to members' meetings. It doesn't feel like that always, but that's why you show up. Because we care about the lost. That's why we're doing it. The reality of this church, First Baptist Jerusalem, is that it's their joy in Christ and their longing for other people to get saved that drives them to commit to delegation of duties. In Acts 6, mission drives vision. That's what happens in that church. The mission drives the vision. Practically then, if you're here in the church tonight, you remember, what are the things you could be doing? What drives your thinking? Is your mindset about in here, predominantly about people who are currently out there? I wonder if that's how you think about church. This place exists for everyone who's not in it. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Whilst we care for each other, whilst we, we tend to widows and things like that. The last party we see committed, and the reason they're committed is exactly the same as the seven. These, uh, these first deacons who step up to the task, why do they do it? They do it for that very same reason. Because they respect the diversity of gifts in the church, and they want to prioritize the preaching of the word. That's why they step up. People become deacons in Acts 6 because they care about the mission and they understand that them serving in this way allows others to serve in that way which allows the gospel to spread and for them to grow that's why they do it it's actually a passage about gospel advance but you don't always read Acts 6 that way so what follows here is that the whole church is dedicated 
and happy to this structure. It's a church on mission. That's how they understand themselves. They're on mission. That's what they're about. And so they structure themselves as a mission organization to make sure the word's at the center and it keeps going out and going out and going out. That's how they work. So structure in Acts 6 is discussed on the premise of the word of God having to go to the nations. That's why they do it. So I wonder how's God gifted you to serve? What's the areas in which you've been gifted? Uh, are there things you just see in the life of the church around you you think, I could take that on and that would probably free someone else up to do maybe what they're called to do? There's loads of opportunities to serve. There's continually opportunities to serve. And praise God, it happens. It does happen. People are using their gifts. That's a really good thing. But it's important that we keep working out how can people serve? Working out who's got the gifts out there. How can they do this? How, can they, how could they do that? And how can we collectively together structure better so that people who teach the word can do more and more and more of it? And we might find more and more and more of them. So the word of God might go and go and go. That's what's going to drive this. I mean, I'm just so encouraged that that's happened today. Lots of, lots of other people have served in lots of other ways that I could get the chance to do this. My wife served me this afternoon in letting me have a few run-throughs. Uh, Adam served me by offering to lead the service. Donald served me by helping with the music. The guys at the back are helping me right now. Somebody turned the lights on. It wasn't me. That's really good because I could concentrate on this. It's really good. That's just serving. They're all equally honored, equally dignified. They're all glorious. They'll serve the church and serve the growth of the gospel. So why don't you spend some time this week working through that serve section? How can you serve? How can you serve? Now, one little thing before we start to wrap up. Does serving in a certain area in the church and not being called to be a minister of the word exempt you from preaching the gospel, from sharing the gospel in your life? Maybe you're just thinking about committing to be a deacon and you think, oh, if I take on this area of deaconing or if I... Uh, start managing a certain practical area of the church, does that mean I get a get-out-of-jail-free card for sharing the gospel? Look at Stephen. This is the first ever deacon in the Bible. Look at how he's described. Back in chapter 6. First deacon, Stephen, described as full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? If you come back next week, this very same Stephen's going to preach the gospel, gospel so boldly and so explicitly he's going to be the first person in this new church to die for it. And he's going to die like and with his saviour Christ who he's been serving in the church by waiting on widows. You don't get a get out of jail free card if you serve in other ways. Everybody's called to be on mission but we all need the preaching of the word to equip us on that mission. That's what's happening here. Um, maybe you're not really getting gripped by this. Maybe this doesn't grab you. Uh, Stephen was an individual gripped by the vision of people getting saved. Maybe you're not gripped by it. But let me read to you again verse 7. And let this grab you by the throat. This is beautiful. This is what happens when delegation happens for the delight of all people. Verse 7. So the word of God spread. That's really increased. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Multiplied greatly. And a large number of priests became obedient of the faith. That's why 2 to 6 exists. It's verse 7. That's what this text is about. That's why they did it. That's why we should think about doing things like this. For the sake of the lost. That's what we're working for here, isn't it? Church on mission together. That's us. And we want the word to blossom. Do you see that verse 7? The word of God blossomed, spread, increased, boomed. That's the desire that we should have, isn't it? 
as that happens, people come to delight in Christ. So let a desire for delight drive you as we mull these things over as a church, as we come to make decisions. Let that drive you. A threefold commitment to the delegation of duties for the delight of all people. That's why we discuss delegation as the gospel. So the question for us is Charlotte Chapel. We do do quite a lot of this, and we do lots of it fairly well. We probably do none of it perfectly. But we need to ask, are we currently structured in a way that is all about the blossoming and increasing of the word of God in us and through us? And if the answer is no, are we prepared to be? If we're not shaped thus, are we prepared to be? Are we committed to verse 7? Is verse 7 worth it to you tonight? What would you do to see verse 7 said of Edinburgh? The number of disciples in Edinburgh increased rapidly. A large number of imams became obedient to the faith. What do you do to see that? Does that grab you? Does that tantalate you? I think the reality is if you were the person out there right now, you'd be really happy for us to make that decision. You'd want us to do whatever it took to make sure we got the word of God to you. And that's what's amazing about this group of people. They realized they were outside, probably for, for a lot of them, just a few weeks ago. Maybe you got, became a Christian 60 years ago and it kind of feels, you've kind of forgotten what it was like to be on the outside, but right now there's 450,000 people outside. There's 200 people inside. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. And it's a desire for them to be, verse 7, that drives us to think about delegation. That's why we should do it. That's where hearts and heads should be as we think about engaging in the church, serving as best we can, and witnessing to Edinburgh to the ends of the earth. That's why we're here. That call of Jesus, that commission of Jesus is still here. Jesus is still giving people gifts and calling people to serve in different ways. That's why we're doing this. We've got to be ready to see the word of God abound. We've got to be happy to facilitate whatever's going to make its abounding most likely. That's what we've got to do. The reality is, Charlotte Chapel, mission has to drive our method. Mission is going to have to drive our method. So let's let the spread of the gospel be the source of church structuring as we start to discuss these things. Let's pray together.